I'm one of the elders here at Covenant Hope Church. The noted atheist Richard Dawkins is quoted as saying this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Well, I guess Richard really told us what he thought there. I wonder what your conclusions that you're drawing about God are from our study of Genesis, this first book in the Bible. What conclusions are you drawing about Him? You know, we parents generally know what it's like to shift uncomfortably in our seats and clear our throat before trying to answer questions from our children about the Bible. Like, why did Joseph want to marry, want to divorce Mary? Or, what did Potiphar's wife want from Joseph and why did he run away? Things like that. And what about the people in the Bible? God's people. They're certainly less than perfect. Really, they're, they're quite a mess. Even the heroes and the heroines of Scripture. I remember sitting in the food court of one of the universities here in Dubai earlier, early in my days here, discussing with uh, a new friend named Nabil. Nabil, as you could guess, is Muslim. And I remember talking to Nabil about similar stories that we knew of the ancient figures, figures from what we would call the Old Testament. And I told Nabil, I said, yeah, you know, it's interesting, the patriarchs, the kings, even the apostles of the New Testament, many of them were liars and murderers and sexual sinners. Nabil was shocked. And yet that's what we find when we open up the Bible. Imperfect people used by God. The Bible is filled with people who sin and are in need of the saving mercy of God. And that's what we see, particularly in Genesis chapter 16. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn there right now. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and we're in chapter 16. The big idea that I want you to get from this entire chapter is this. Man's sin leads to misery, but God's mercy saves. Man's sin leads to misery, but God's mercy saves. Last week we read about God's incredibly great promises given to Abram, which He guaranteed by cutting a covenant with Abram. He promised a multitude of descendants, more than the stars in the sky, and a land for them to live in that stretched across the entire Middle East. God's word of promise was enough, of course. But in His love and His kindness to Abram, He went farther. He guaranteed those promises by entering into a traditional ceremony that would have been familiar to Abram. But there was one big difference with what God did that would have surprised Abram. 
God guaranteed that the promises would be filled if either he or Abram broke the covenant. If Abram broke faith with God, if he disobeyed God, his maker, then God would pay the price. God would take the punishment himself. What a God. And now as we start into chapter 16, it's been 10 years since Abram arrived in the promised land, but still his wife Sarah has not given birth to any children. Where are the multitudes? He's got hundreds of servants, many of them from Egypt, and his wealth is only increasing. But how will God keep his promise of descendants if Sarai remains unable to have children? We're going to see what happens when man and woman try to fashion their own blessings instead of trusting God's guaranteed promises. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 16. If you've already found it, follow along with me. We're going to start with just the first six verses, and then we'll talk about it and move on. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar. And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for illumination. We need to understand God's Word and what He wants to teach us today. Heavenly Father, we see that You are determined to bless us through Jesus Christ, Your only Son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And as we hear Your Word today, Lord, help us hear Your voice clearly. Help us understand your gracious and merciful character more deeply. Help us see how this passage in particular points to Christ. And help us know better how we should live our lives to bring maximum glory and honor to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this first six verses can be described by the point titled, Man's Sinful Misery. Man's Sinful Misery. These verses describe Sarai, Abram, and even Hagar, the servant girl, creating one big relational mess. It all begins with a reminder from the author of Genesis, Moses, that Sarai, Abram's wife, had not borne any children and were introduced to a new person, Hagar, a female Egyptian servant who attended Sarai. Hagar was likely obtained when Abram and Sarai traveled down to Egypt in chapter 12. Now, verse 3 tells us it's been 10 years that Abram and Sarai have been in the land, but still no children have been born to the couple. 
If God is not going to come through on his promise, Sarai has an idea. So she tells Abram, quote, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now it's worth stopping right there and noting right away that Sarai is correct. God is sovereign over childbearing. Whether you've been unable to have children or whether you've conceived and given birth, God is the one who is in control of life. If you're thinking of trying to begin a family, you should plan as best you can, but know that God will ultimately be the one to bless you with children or withhold that blessing. Praying must accompany your planning. Now, Sarah was right about God's control in the conception of children, but there's an absence of praying and an absence of consultation with God. And so she comes up with her own plan. And her plan is for Abram to sleep with her servant girl, Hagar, so that Sarai can get a child through her. Now, you and I might be scandalized by this when we read it we immediately know that this was wrong. But in that day and time, this was an accepted way for a woman who couldn't have children to adopt a child. A famous code of laws from the ancient Near East provides guidelines for how a servant could provide a child, excuse me, yes, could provide a child for adoption to a childless couple. Sarai might have been thinking, well, this is how God is going to work to fulfill His promise to us. God promised a descendant from Abram. Maybe He didn't include me. It was an accepted cultural practice. But again, we would be wise to consider the cultural practices of our families or of our ethnicities or of our nations in light of God's Word and His wisdom. It's so easy to never question how our national culture or our family culture especially might go against God's ways. This is true for everyone. Every culture has parts of it that sin has infiltrated and distorted. Take marriage. Often in the West, a young couple make their own decision about getting married without consulting wise people around them and perhaps based largely on physical attraction, something which can quickly disappear when the pressures and the responsibilities of life come crashing in. Oftentimes in the East, arranged marriages are guided by parents and family members who may mean well but don't have God's wisdom and rather are matchmaking based on worldly standards like are they the right from the right tribe or right ethnic group or do they get a high enough salary or what's the reputation of the family rather than the reputation of the individual both of those examples east and west are distorted by sin And so prejudice and pride and sensuality are just a few of the sins that end up forcing bad or difficult decisions about marriage. And that's just marriage. There's certainly room for different cultural customs, which can all in different ways honor God. But let's be sure that we don't unquestioningly adopt our culture's practices and risk disobeying God. Sarai suggested Abram have a child by Hagar. 
And so we see at the end of verse 3, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 4 goes on to tell us that Hagar became a second wife to Abram. This is in clear violation of God's plan for marriage to be between one woman and one man. God had made that clear back in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve. I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. The author of Genesis doesn't always give us clear commentary to make it clear when people are sinning and when they're not sinning. We're often left to make that decision on our own, having read the entire book. But the author's description of the family chaos that follows from it should be enough for us to know in this case. Hagar conceived. And then she despised and looked with contempt on Sarai. She saw herself as superior. Sarai complains to Abram, blaming him for her difficult situation. And Abram's answer is to give Sarai permission to treat Hagar however she wants, his new wife. And then we come to the end of verse 6. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. These are the people of God. These are the people who have demonstrated faith in the prior chapters. And so these are chapters that we as believers, people of faith, can learn from. Well, I want to encourage you, and when you're sitting down and talking with people, perhaps in your family, and they're reading in the Bible things that they don't understand, things that don't make sense, things that they don't think should, God should allow happen. I want to encourage you to not be quick to just correct them. They don't understand. They don't understand that God uses sinners. I want to encourage you if you have children or maybe you have a relative who comes to you and raises the issue of, this kind of behavior from God's people in the Bible. Listen carefully to your relative. Listen carefully to your children. Don't be quick to correct. Listen and take it in. Later, you can explain how God is working. I wonder if you saw all the echoes of Genesis' first few chapters here when Adam and Eve and their children disobeyed God. Do you see the echoes here in our passage? Over and over again in Genesis, patterns emerge. Sarai sees something that she's not supposed to have, at least right now, and she effectively reaches to take it in her own way, just like Eve was tempted by the fruit on the forbidden tree. Abram passively listened to the sinful advice of his wife, just like Adam listened to the sinful advice of his wife Eve, and so ate the fruit along with her. Sarai blames Abram for the bad decision. She suggested just like Adam blamed Eve for them both eating the fruit when he knew better. Hagar feels superior towards Sarai and acts hateful toward her, just like Cain acted in murderous hate against his brother Abel. And finally, all this sin resulted in someone fleeing, just like Adam and Eve hid in the garden from God. God created all things good in the beginning. Our God-given gender, 
our God-given sexuality, love and order in marriage, fruitfulness in childbearing, kindness and compassion that was supposed to exist between people. All of these wonderful gifts from God meant to bring joy to us and glory to God instead of creating chaos and misery when sin entered in. There's so much for us to learn in these first six verses, brothers and sisters. Husbands, you must not be passive in your marriage. God gave you a leadership role that's lived out primarily by shepherding your wife and laying your life down for her. What tangible ways are you loving your wife through spiritual leadership? I think a bare minimum is regularly reading God's Word with her and regularly initiating prayer with her. That's the bare minimum, I think. And you don't have to be married to learn from this chapter. If you're a single man and you're spiritually passive in your friendships now, you're setting patterns that will be hard to break if you marry. Wives, you must not manipulate your husband or anyone in your family. You mustn't manipulate using physical intimacy. You must not manipulate using emotional blackmail. In other words, if you don't do this, I'm going to throw a fit. You must not manipulate using money or authority or anything. Blame shifting on either side shouldn't be found in our family relationships. When something goes wrong, are you tempted to highlight what someone else did wrong and instead ignore what you did wrong and contributed to the situation? It's so easy. Authority is a gift from God meant to protect and benefit others. All of us are under authority, and some also have authority in our families and in our workplace. But our sin nature causes us either to not use our authority for the protection of others when we should, just like Abram should have used it then, and Sarai as well. Or we wield our authority like a weapon in order to hurt others, like Sarai did with Hagar here. And as much as Hagar is mistreated here, she is not without sin, it seems. Her contempt for Sarai is a sinful response, even though we can easily see ourselves feeling the same way. If we want to be vigilant against sin in our lives, perhaps the first place that we should look is in our marriages and in our families. Oh, brothers and sisters. Look out for sin. Throughout Genesis, we see the effects of sin's slavery in our lives and the way that men and women's, rela- men and women's relationships become corrupted, oftentimes in relationship to our sexuality. And though men are most often to blame for abusing women for sexual purposes, Genesis will show us that it's not limited to men abusing women. Unfortunately, we see cases of men abusing women, women abusing women, women abusing men, and men abusing men before we get to the end of Genesis. What God made to be good, sin makes miserable and damaging. 
Now, when reading these Old Testament narratives, I want to caution you about drawing overly simplistic lessons for yourselves. In other words, you need to be careful that you don't assume that because your situation seems just like theirs, that you should do exactly what they did. So, for example, Hagar was abused by Sarah, treated harshly, and so Hagar fled. God is going to tell her to return to Sarah's Sarai's household. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're in an abusive situation that you should stay there. It might be wise for you to leave, unless, of course, the angel of the Lord appears to you and tells you to go back. If you're in an abusive situation, I want to encourage you to come to the elders. Come and talk to us. Let us pray with you. Let us know what the situation is that you're dealing with. We'll deal with it discreetly. We want to help you see the way out of it, if at all possible. Another example of misapplying this passage involves Abram and Sarai's marriage. Abram shouldn't have listened to Sarai's suggestion to take Hagar as a second wife. That's clear. But husbands, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen to your wife. In chapter 21, Sarai will suggest that Hagar and her son be sent away, and God tells Abram he should listen to her. In that case, it was wise counsel. Interpreting and applying God's word for you in the best way requires wisdom and a a broad understanding of Scripture. That's one of the reasons that we're a whole church community that's reading the Scripture together interpreting it together, asking for prayer from one another and insight as we make decisions in our lives in light of Scripture. That's one way that the church serves us when we join into a covenant community, like Covenant Hope Church. Last of all, I want you to see how sin is always an effort to manufacture our own blessings rather than looking to God who wants to bless us. Sarai and Abram had the promise of God for children, but decided that they could fulfill God's promise better than God could Himself. Where there's sin in our lives, we are reaching for some kind of blessing that either we shouldn't have right now, or God wants to give it to us in His own way and in His own time. When we try to make our own blessings apart from God, we only create misery and mistreatment and mistakes. We're like the mom who promises her kids they'd, she'd make cupcakes together with them after she takes a shower. And so while she's away, the children, perhaps well-meaning, try to do it themselves. And pretty soon there's flour and sugar spilled everywhere in the kitchen Fingers are about to get caught in the mixing bowl and the cooker is about to burn the house down. Man-made blessings fail. But as we see in the next section, God's mercy saves. God's mercy saves. Let's read Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 through 16. Read along with me. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. 
The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. God's mercy saves in these verses. The scene in these verses shifts dramatically as we follow Hagar on her flight from Abram and Sarai. She's from Egypt, and so she flees toward Egypt. And in God's providence, she finds a spring of water in the wilderness. She's a pregnant woman. She's unprotected and on the run in a dangerous place, but God sees her, and God meets her in her need. In verse 7, we read that God is called the angel of the Lord here. This is the first time in Genesis that this phrase is used. And we might be forgiven if we think that this is simply an angel. We're going to see more angels mentioned in a few chapters, but in verse 13, the writer of Genesis tells us that this angel of the Lord was, in fact, the Lord. Anytime the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, appears in some kind of physical form, just like the smoking pot and the flaming torch in the last chapter, chapter 15, the word to describe that is a theophany, a theophany. It means an appearance of God. Theo means God. But many scholars go on to rightly, I think, reason and understand Scripture to teach that no one has seen God, as it says in John chapter 1. And so they reason that when God appears as a man in a human form, it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is called a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before He took on a human body and a human nature. Whatever we call this appearance of God, his interaction with Hagar is summed up in one question and three statements. A question, a command, a promise, and a prophecy. A question, a command, a promise, and a prophecy. First, the question. Look with me at verse 8 again. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I wonder if that question reminds you of God's first interaction with Adam in the garden after they'd sinned. Do you remember what he called out to Adam? Where are you? Hagar has an answer for where she's come from. She's fleeing from her mistress Sarai, but she has no answer for where she's going. She doesn't know exactly where she's going. She's headed away from Sarai. That's all she knows. And then we hear the command from the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 9. 
The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now that might seem harsh on God's part, but at least some of the conflict with Sarai has been brought on by Hagar's contempt of her. God wants her to make it right. She needs to return. And God clearly thinks that her submission to Sarai is not a bad thing. Besides, the child is Abram's, and he must take on the responsibility of helping to raise this child. Anyone under his care and in his household seems to prosper with God's blessings. So the household of Abram is where she belongs. But the command isn't the end of what God has for her. God also has a promise for her. Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. God is promising that He's going to care for and prosper both Hagar and the child that's in her womb. And the promise, of course, it sounds much like the promise made to Abram, except that the promise of blessings is not explicit, and it's not through her offspring that the families of the whole earth will be blessed. It's a promise, it's a wonderful promise, but it's not the promise. God has that promise in store for Abram's covenant line of descendants. And last, the angel of the Lord gives a prophecy. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. We can take it line by line. Behold, you are pregnant, of course that's something that she already knows, and shall bear a son. That's something she doesn't know. You shall call his name Ishmael. That's a command that's mixed in with this prophecy. And Ishmael means God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, the angel of the Lord says. Of course, she must have been crying out to the God of her master and now husband Abram. And he's heard her. He goes on to say, He shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. These last four lines of the prophecy foretell that Ishmael is going to be strong and independent, perhaps even difficult to deal with. Still, God would show kindness to him by making him grow into a mighty nation. In fact, if we would to read farther on in chapter 17, we learn that 12 princes are going to come from him like the eventual 12 tribes of Jacob, the one who would be born Abram's grandson of promise. God is going to pour out blessing on him. God has shown saving mercy to Hagar, and she recognizes that. And so she renames God. You are a God of seeing, she says. She goes on to say, truly here I have seen him who looks after me, or I've seen the one who sees me. We could say it that way. The spring where she encountered God would later be called in English, well of the living one who sees me. And then in verse 15 and 16, we see that Hagar obeyed God, and she returned to Abram's household. Abram must have believed her when she recounted the Lord's rescue and conversation with the angel of the Lord, because Abram names the son as God commanded, which was a privilege that Abram would have had in that culture. 
Abram was 86 years old, we read, when Ishmael was born. And of course, many of you may know that Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. Arabs trace their history, their heredity back to Ishmael. God's mercy shown to an Egyptian servant girl is amazing to consider. First, that God appeared to woman reminds us that God created both man and woman in His image, and both have inherent value and worth to God. If you're a woman, be reminded that you are of great worth to the Lord. No matter what a family member says about you in comparison, perhaps to brothers, And her Egyptian heritage gives us a hint that God's blessings will eventually be poured out on all the families of the earth. There is no nationality or tribe or ethnic group which God loves more than any other. God's blessings and mercy are there for all to call on. I wonder if you feel like Hagar, unseen, ignored, taken advantage of? Does God really see what I'm going through, you might wonder to yourself? He does. He knows. He cares. Psalm 139 is a beautiful poem which King David wrote, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You can't stray or run so far that God can't find you. He knows you, and He has a storehouse of mercy to pour out into your life if you would only cry out to Him and receive it. Mercy is what we get when we don't get what we deserve. When we get compassion and kindness and forgiveness instead of what we deserve. A pastor friend named Isaac tells a story of working to put on a big Christian conference. And at the conference, there was a huge bookstore with large stacks of books placed all around the huge room. Attendees were free to pick up the books and then walk to the registers and pay for them. After the conference, an email came into Pastor Isaac's inbox weeks later. It was a confession. A young man wrote how he had attended the conference and picked up book after book after book and simply put them in his backpack and walked out of the room. They were worth hundreds of dollars. 
And the Spirit had convicted him, and he was writing to make things correct, make it right. He wanted to pay for all those books that he had stolen. Isaac was rightfully angry and shocked at this young man. And so he went incensed to the conference director, Pastor Matt, to report this terrible injustice. And to his amazement, Pastor Matt told him, write him back. Tell him he doesn't have to pay us anything. And explain to him the mercy of God. God has mercy for you and me. We want what Hagar got in verses 7 through 16. We want to be treated better than we deserve. But there's still the issue of that sinful chaos that's in verses 1 through 6. What is God going to do about that? The same God who has compassion and mercy for all is a holy God. He's a God who's the judge of all, who can't simply wink and sweep our sin under the rug. The sin of Abram and Sarai and even Hagar deserves God's wrath, His righteous, good, and holy wrath. And so God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, a descendant and the promised offspring of Abram. It was Jesus who went to the cross to bear the wrath of God for the sins of Abram and Sarai and Hagar and you and I. On the cross, the justice that the sins of Abram's household and of us are taken care of and accounted for and paid for. And there they're combined with the sweet mercy and compassion that we see poured out on Hagar. Christ crucified is where the justice of God and the mercy of God meet. Hagar cried out for mercy to God and received it. You can too. If you would only recognize your sin and turn to Christ, turn and confess your rebellion against Him. Turn and ask for His mercy shown supremely in Christ. Put your trust and your faith in Him. Do you want to see God like Hagar saw God? Do you want to gaze on the glorious maker of all the heavens and the earth? Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Colossians 1. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you want to see this righteous and merciful God? Look to Christ. Gaze on Jesus. He's the gracious God who pays the penalty for our sins which cause misery. And He's the gracious God whose mercy saves sinners like us. Let's pray to Him. Oh, Heavenly Father, we read these pages in Genesis and we're shocked. We're amazed that You would even deal with people like Abram and Sarai, all the sin in their lives, and we're only in chapter 16. <laughs> and yet, Lord, if we look into our own lives, 
we see that we too are sinners. People who have distrusted you, people who have heard your promise of blessings through your Son, Jesus Christ, and yet we've tried to reach out and make our own blessings. That's called sin. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, sinners. Praise you for sending Jesus, the one who has compassion on us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.